In 2019, I traveled halfway around the world to explore a Chinese city's bizarre obsession with its Jewish past. The city of Harbin is in a remote and frozen part of northeastern China that's traditionally called Manchuria, south of Siberia and north of North Korea. For reasons that would take too long to explain, this city in Manchuria was built by Jews. In my book, People Love Dead Jews, you can learn about how and why the Russians enlisted the Jews to build this city for them back in the early 20th century, and also how and why those Jews all eventually fled. It's a story involving a railroad, a hotel, coal mines, poker, kidnapping, murder, and a world-famous musician's amputated ear. In the book, you'll also learn how the current Chinese government has spent $30 million to restore and reconstruct Harbin's Jewish historical sites, even though the city today is home to exactly one Jew. Why? Well, as the government has publicly explained, they are investing in rebuilding the dead Jews' synagogues and graves so that rich living Jews will come to Harbin and give them money. I know, it's weird. But that's not even close to the weirdest thing that has happened to dead Jews in Manchuria. The weirdest thing is that in Manchuria, the Empire of Japan once tried to build a Jewish state. Actually, that's not even the weirdest part. The weirdest part is why Japan wanted to build a Jewish state. To explain that, we need to rewind back to the beginning of the 20th century, to a chance conversation at a 1904 London dinner party, where one man randomly sat down next to another and altered the course of a nation's history, and how a national obsession with one dead Jew later caused an entire empire to lose its mind. Our story today is about the worldwide reach of an absurd conspiracy theory and about how otherwise intelligent people can come to believe the most ridiculous things. It's about how those ridiculous beliefs then become the basis of even more ridiculous actions. And then, in the final twist, how those ridiculous actions are then reimagined years later to show how everyone's heart was in the right place all along. And in that, this story is unfortunately not that weird at all. I'm Dara Horn, and this is Adventures with Dead Jews. Before we get to that fateful London dinner party, let's start our story in a place far, far away from any center of Jewish life off the coast of a small port city on the Chinese side of the Sea of Japan. On the night of February 8th, 1904, the Imperial Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on a Russian fleet at Port Arthur, Manchuria's only warm water port. Japan started this war, but soon Japan was losing badly. After months of heavy losses, they still had plenty of manpower. What Japan didn't have was cash. The Japanese military desperately needed war supplies, 
but no one would lend them the money to buy any. The situation was desperate enough that Korikio Takahashi, the deputy governor of the Bank of Japan and later Japan's prime minister, personally traveled around the world to New York and then to London to beg for loans from private banks. Nearly every British and American investment house turned him down. Takahashi was preparing to go home in defeat when he went to one last London dinner party. At the dinner, Takahashi couldn't help complaining to the stranger sitting next to him about how the Russians were about to eat his country alive. He was shocked when the stranger said to him, you hate the Russians? I hate the Russians. How can I help? Takahashi happened to be sitting next to a man named Jacob Schiff. Maybe you've never heard of Jacob Schiff? But if you had been alive in 1904, you would have. Because in 1904, Jacob Schiff was one of the wealthiest men in America. Schiff was born in Frankfurt to a religious Jewish family, descended from several centuries worth of renowned rabbis. But his life took him in a different direction. And right after his bar mitzvah, he started working in a Frankfurt brokerage firm. He arrived in America after the Civil War, where he quickly became a major investor in the country's railroads. Soon there was hardly a railroad line in America that hadn't been financed by Jacob Schiff, including everything from the Union Pacific Railroad in California to the Pennsylvania Railroad Tunnel under the Hudson River, in which I've personally been stuck too many times to count. Schiff helped build America's rail network, but his investment clout was what made him powerful. And that happened through an entirely different network. Schiff was incredibly important. What Jacob Schiff does is really change the balance of power. He becomes an international power broker. He is this major banker, major financier. Zev Elif is a historian whose work focuses on American Jewish religious leadership. He is dialoguing with the Rothschilds. He is interceding on behalf of Romanian Jewry. He is changing the entire playbook of how American Jews interact within, within themselves, but also outwardly to Jews and non-Jews way beyond the United States of America. What Schiff and others have is they have a network of relatives, of colleagues living across the United States. Uh, and what they're able to do is create these uh, systems in which they can very easily establish lines of credit to one another, uh, to Jews and to non-Jews. And he becomes a major figure in the American banking scene. What he understands very quickly is the power of money within the Jewish community, but he's one of the first to understand the power of Jewish money without. And so to make uh, political alliances uh, at the White House, on the Senate level, on local government levels. In 1904, Schiff was running one of New York's most powerful investment firms. He was also still seething over the Kishinev pogrom, a horrific massacre of Russian Jews the previous year. There is a spike in awareness of anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish violence in the 1880s. Really after the assassination of Tsar Alexander in 1881 and uh, a series of pogroms, Kishinev pogrom in 1903 most uh, glaringly. Schiff had been lobbying President Teddy Roosevelt to protect the Jews by sanctioning Russia. What Jacob Schiff recognizes is that internationally, 
the power of the dollar has reached an all-time high. Other governments are looking to American banks for loans. And he has the ability to invest and inject his politic into those discussions, not just doing it himself, but he's also bringing the Rothschild family into these discussions. Roosevelt didn't listen to Schiff, but Takahashi did. And suddenly, Schiff had a brilliant new way to stick it to the czar. To many outsiders, this only perpetuates a certain perception of Jewish money and Jewish power. But in, in some sense, this is the very much the first time that what Schiff is able to do is to broker these discussions. He's able to lace his politic with his business so powerfully. And particularly in the Russian case, they're looking for American banks to offer them loans, to finance wars, to finance uh, investments. And Schiff is front and center of these discussions. The Russians need the loans. The Japanese need the loans to finance the war. And Schiff resoundingly is in favor of supporting the Japanese effort on behalf of the fact that Jews aren't treated all that nicely in Russia. Okay, enough about Jacob Schiff. Let's get back to his chance dinner meeting with our Japanese banker friend. After the dinner, Takahashi went back to his hotel to pack for his long trip back to Japan. But the next morning, Schiff showed up at Takahashi's London hotel room with a $5 million loan. Soon he expanded that to $200 million, or over $4.5 billion today. It's an unavoidable discussion. In fact, you have Jewish wealth somehow mediating very much the outcome of this war. Jacob Schiff played into certain tropes, certain motifs of, of Jewishness that were none too kind. Schiff is aware of this and he's undaunted. He's aware that he fits so unkindly into this idea, into this Shylockian conception of a Jew. And yet, and yet he goes on. By the following year, Japan had won the war, thanks to the cash from Jacob Schiff. And Jacob Schiff was suddenly big in Japan. The Japanese emperor bestowed on Schiff the Order of the Sacred Treasure and the Order of the Rising Sun, the Japanese equivalent of being knighted. Schiff was the first foreigner to receive this honor in person from the emperor in the imperial palace. Schiff was a Japanese national hero, and soon he was also a household name. Japanese newspapers spread the word about how Schiff had single-handedly saved their country, and they explained to the public that it had all happened because Schiff was a Jew. You might think that a country that was single-handedly saved by a Jew would be inclined against anti-Semitism, and especially a country like Japan, where very few Jews have ever even lived. Well, you would be wrong. Instead, the opposite happened. And this is where our story gets really strange. In, in the minds of Japanese leadership, Jews were synonymous with international banking, finance, connections, ability to get them. Here to help us understand it all is Meron Medzini. 
a professor emeritus in Asian studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I was the head of the Israel government press office. And in that capacity, I worked for as spokesman, Prime Ministers Levi Eshkol, Golda Meir, Yitzhak Rabin, uh, and I was the first teacher of modern Japanese history in Israel in 1964. Medzini has spent a lifetime explaining the Jews to the world and explaining Japan to the Jews. But for him, the subject is also personal. My father was born in Siberia, in the city of Irkutsk, 1897. And he grew up there, apparently a well-to-do family, and the family decided to send him to high school in China, in Manchuria. Yep, his dad was one of those Russian Jews who wound up in the Jewish-built city of Harbin. But he didn't stay there. And being a high school graduate, became an officer in the Tsarist army. But he was also a Zionist. He believed that Jews should eventually have their own uh, state. And uh, therefore, he was both an officer in the Tsarist army and a Zionist. At some point, he attended a Zionist meeting in Moscow, 19, late 1917, after the revolution, early 1918. And then he went back to Siberia. Apparently, he foresaw what was going to happen. He escaped from Russia back to Manchuria, and then he lived in Japan for a year, then went on to China for several weeks and ended up in what was then Palestine in late 1919. It was in Palestine that his father's life intersected with our story today. But to understand how that happened, we first have to stop in Siberia for another face-off between Russia and Japan. The Modern anti-Semitism arrived in Japan through Russian, white Russians who escaped from Russia and mainly from Siberia after the Bolshevik Revolution. And they frightened the Japanese that Jews were responsible for regicide. In other words, Jews were responsible for executing the Tsar and his family and warned the Japanese that you've got to be extremely careful of these Jews because they will take over the entire world and certainly Japan. Between 1919 and 1922, 75,000 Japanese soldiers were sent to Siberia to fight the Russian communists. But this time, the Japanese were fighting alongside their Russian allies, the white Russian royalists. Here's the thing about white Russian royalists. Instead of just giving every soldier a uniform and a rifle, the white Russian royalists also gave every soldier a complimentary copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the notorious anti-Semitic forgery that describes how powerful Jewish bankers are plotting to take over the world. The Protocols was first published in 1903 and was created by the Russian secret police. It's largely based on an 1864 French satire about the power-hungry Napoleon III. Essentially, somebody did a find-and-replace on Napoleon and put in Jews. Naturally, the white Russians also handed out copies of this essential reading material to their Japanese allies, especially to the officers who knew Russian. Those Japanese officers read this book, and they remembered Jacob Schiff. 
Jacob Schiff had died in 1920, leaving many legends behind him. Now, this revered dead Jew was suddenly catapulted out of the realm of reality and into a very believable myth. To the Japanese, the protocol's story about the rich Jews manipulating the fate of nations in secret deals over lavish dinners and in smoky hotel rooms, it didn't sound like a crackpot conspiracy theory. It sounded like a fact. In the Japanese army, they started asking questions. What do we know about Jews? Who are these people? What do they want? Two Japanese military officers in Siberia, Army Major Norohiro Yasue and Navy Captain Koroshige Inazuka, were so fascinated by this new information that when they returned to Japan, Yasue translated the protocols into Japanese with 80 pages of notes. For Japanese readers, this news about an international Jewish bankers conspiracy did not contradict the fact of Jacob Schiff's nation-saving loan. On the contrary, it explained it. Army Major Norihiro Yasue was particularly obsessed with the protocols, especially the part about how the Jews were secretly corrupting the youth of the world. Yasue was from an old samurai family from northern Japan, and he was disturbed by how young people all over Asia seemed to be turning against their elders, not to mention their emperors. After he translated the protocols, Yasue used the book to convince Japan's foreign ministry to open a special office just to study this international Jewish conspiracy. He and Navy Captain Inazuka, who was also the son of a samurai, would of course contribute their expertise. And that is how these two officers became officially employed as Jewish experts by the Empire of Japan. And they remained specialists in Jewish affairs all through the Second World War. Now it's almost 25 years. The Japanese government loved the idea of having a special office just to keep track of the Jews. In fact, they loved it so much that they created a worldwide intelligence gathering operation just to stay on top of this dangerous threat. They ordered Japanese consulates in every country around the world to collect information about the Jews. And when I say collect information about the Jews, I'm talking about collecting local synagogue newsletters and mailing them back to Tokyo, where Jewish experts like Yasue and Inazuka could study them for evidence of the Jews' elaborate schemes. Somehow the synagogue newsletters about bagel brunches didn't provide all the information the Japanese wanted. But they did show that Jews around the world seemed very eager to send their Jewish money to Palestine. In light of this new intelligence, the Japanese foreign ministry did something so bonkers that I can't believe it actually happened. In 1926, they sent Major Yasue on an all-expenses-paid fact-finding mission to Palestine to investigate the Jewish conspiracy himself. And thus, Major Yasue embarked on his own personal birthright tour. He would travel through Palestine, and not only to Palestine, to other places, and I think he ended up in Germany as well, and have a look and see what these Jews are up to.
Yasue's trip was a little longer than Birthright's, since it took him two months to travel from Japan to Palestine. Once he arrived, he spent five weeks collecting intelligence instead of just 10 days. But otherwise, it was remarkably similar. Like on a birthright trip, Yasue spent time in Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, and on a kibbutz. He saw soldiers with guns and girls on the beach. He visited the newly opened Hebrew University and took tours of high-tech factories. He met with rabbis, scientists, and politicians. On his kibbutz tour, he learned how these Jewish collective farms were a model for a new advanced society. And just like on a birthright trip, Yasue needed a cool Israeli guide. For the kibbutz part of his trip, his guide was Medzini's father. The Zionist executive in Jerusalem then recruited my father and said, take time off from your work as a journalist. You know Russian, you know English. He did speak Japanese. Yasue spoke some English. There was another fellow together with him, a priest, I think. My father spoke to one in English and to the other in Russian, and they translated into Japanese. He spent five days with them, taking him to Kibbutzim near Jerusalem. Kiryat Anavim was one of them, which was then five years old. It was established in 1922. He also showed them industry. He also showed them Technion, or Technical College or University in Haifa. And therefore he traveled around with them for five days. And uh, later on, when they came back, they issued reports. Yasuo was very impressed. He says, these are serious people, people who know what they want. They have very good connections with international Jewry. Yasue was particularly interested in the kibbutzim he saw with Medzini's father, because on the kibbutz tour, Major Yasue became convinced that the kibbutz was the key to the plot. He reported back to his superiors in Japan that these collective farms were actually training camps for the Jews' future colonization of the world. Unfortunately, as Yasue complained in his reports, the Jews of Palestine were far too clever to spill their secrets about their plot to dominate the planet. And then, in a kind of inverted birthright trip, Yasue left Palestine via Beirut and spent the next five months in Berlin. Major Yasue went home with a lot to think about, and an idea began brewing in his mind. It was clear to him now that the Jews were diabolically clever. But surely, he imagined, the Japanese could use that cleverness to their imperial advantage. As his fellow Jewish expert Captain Inazuka put it much later, the Jews are like a fugu, a highly prized poisonous blowfish, a rare delicacy, but unless one knows how to prepare it properly, it may prove fatal. The Russians were clearly right that Jews were a potential poison to one's country. But if the Japanese were very, very careful, couldn't they exploit that diabolical power for the benefit of Japan? A few years later, Yasue and Inazuka finally had a chance to act on their grand idea, which brings us to the bizarre Japanese attempt to build a Jewish state. 
By 1932, Japan had conquered 600,000 square miles of the vast, frigid, underpopulated, and resource-rich region of northeastern China called Manchuria. You may recall that this was the same place where the Russians, 30 years earlier, had enlisted the Jews to build them a city called Harbin. Like the Russians before them, the Japanese realized that they needed talented people, preferably people with money, to run Manchuria efficiently and extract its resources. Like the Russians before them, they knew who they wanted. After the Nazis took over Germany in 1933, there was suddenly a supply to match their demand. Thousands of German Jews were already racing to one of the few places in the world that would take them, Shanghai. After the Nazi takeover, Yasue and Inazuka published their initial plan to resettle 50,000 German Jews in their hypothetical Jewish state and started pitching it to the empire's power players. By 1936, Japan signed its first pact with Nazi Germany, which you would think would be an obstacle to this grand plan. Instead, Yasue and Inazuka saw an opportunity. If the Germans were too dumb to take advantage of the Jews' diabolical brainpower, well, their loss was Japan's gain. Here's Meron Medzini again. Some senior Japanese officials in Manchuria came to the conclusion that Manchuria has to acquire great deal of foreign investments as well as foreign experts in order to deal, in order to rebuild, in order to revive the economy of Manchuria. Among some Japanese officials, especially uh, in the Southern Manchurian Railway, which was a Japanese-controlled company, somebody probably raised the issue, why don't we organize 50,000 German Jews who would come to Manchuria. They will be skilled, educated, experienced people, and hopefully they will bring some money with them. And we'll settle them in Manchuria, and they will help us build the economy of Manchuria. And this will look very nice in America as well. Thanks to their many years of research, the Jewish specialists, Yasue and Inuzuka, had a much bigger vision than the Russians ever did. They weren't going to lure thousands of Jews to Manchuria just to build a city or manage some coal mines. No, they were going to beat the Jews at their own game of three-dimensional chess. After his time in Palestine, Yasue knew how badly the Jews wanted their own country. And because of his extensive scholarship on the international Jewish conspiracy, he also knew that Jews in America were secretly running the world. There was awareness that Jews play a very prominent role in America in academia, in media, in films, certainly in finance and banking and labor unions, in politics. And therefore, everything has to be done not to antagonize American Jews in any way. On the contrary, ways have to be found 
to establish contact with them. Yasue knew that the Jews ran Hollywood and controlled the radio and newspapers. He also knew that they controlled the American government. President Roosevelt, a different President Roosevelt from the days of Jacob Schiff, was surrounded by Jews, like the Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau and the all-powerful rabbi Stephen Wise. And Yasue also knew that Roosevelt was considering sanctions against Japan. But if the Jews had a homeland in Manchuria, the American Jews would obviously manipulate Roosevelt in Japan's favor. The way to get the Americans to open their hearts to Japan was to get the American Jews to open their wallets. And the best way to do that, as the Bagel Brunch newsletters made clear, was to create a Jewish state in Manchuria. Then, all those rich Jews would stop filling up their Jewish National Fund donation boxes and instead send their cash straight to the Japanese. Yasue by now had been promoted to colonel, and the army sent him to Manchuria as head of Jewish affairs. In Manchuria, Colonel Yasue laid the groundwork for the plan. First, he created a Far Eastern Jewish council to represent the Jews. He had the Jews elect a leader, a respected physician named Dr. Abraham Kaufman. Then he sent Dr. Kaufman off to meet with the Japanese emperor, just like Jacob Schiff did. But unlike Jacob Schiff, Dr. Kaufman was then forced to sign a series of declarations announcing the Jews' undying gratitude to Nazi-allied Japan. These sworn statements from an actual Jew, attesting to Japan's good intentions, were printed and mailed to every Jewish organization in America. Then it was time for step two. Yasue dispatched another Harbin Jew, the businessman Lou Zickman, to go to New York and meet with the American Jewish Congress, an organization whose name said it all. The Jews in America even had their own Congress, a shadow version of the one in Washington. If an American Jewish Congress weren't enough, there was also a World Jewish Congress, further evidence of the international plot. And the head of both of these all-powerful Congresses was the all-powerful Rabbi Stephen Wise. The idea was to mobilize Jews in order to establish contact with the American Jewish community in order to produce a pro-Japanese proclamation. One of the key leaders was Rabbi Stephen Wise. Rabbi Stephen Wise was so close with Roosevelt that, as Captain Inazuka wrote, he goes anywhere the president goes as the shadow follows the form. At the end of November 1938, two weeks after Kristallnacht, Colonel Yasue had Lou Zickman float the idea to Stephen Wise about the Manchurian Jewish state. Yasue and Inazuka weren't entirely wrong about Stephen Wise. The reform rabbi was kind of like the Forrest Gump of American Jewish history, showing up in every important moment in the early 20th century. He was friends with President Woodrow Wilson and also with Franklin Roosevelt. Both presidents often consulted him on Jewish affairs, making Wise a player in two world wars. Here's American Jewish historian Zev Elef again. So Stephen Wise was another figure who is undaunted, 
Uh, and here's another person who doesn't fit into a mold. Charismatic, not necessarily book brilliant, but somebody who knows how to use other people's books to establish a mission, a vision. Somebody who is deeply influenced by the social gospel. And Stephen Wise is this fascinating, intriguing iconoclast who bucks trend after trend after trend into his credit. He is able to establish relationships with people that other Jews simply could not have access to, namely FDR. And he becomes this incredible reservoir of political currency on behalf of Jews to the White House and to American politics writ large. Wise was one of America's first outspoken Zionists. He had served as chief secretary and delegate for English speakers at Theodore Herzl's Zionist Congress. And he convinced President Woodrow Wilson to support the Balfour Declaration in favor of a Jewish state in Palestine. Wise was politically active outside the Jewish community too. He represented New York State at Democratic Party national conventions. He was one of the first Americans to speak publicly against the Armenian genocide. And he was one of the founding board members of the NAACP, alongside our old friend, Jacob Schiff. So the Japanese had good reasons to think that he might be their man. He enters into the uh, New York political machines and eventually establishes a relationship with Washington, D.C. And with FDR, he basically becomes his confidant in all things Jewish. So he becomes a lightning rod. And, and when he establishes the American Jewish Congress, he has plenty of folks asking him to intercede and to speak to a Zionist cause. Wise is probably one of the five most well-connected Jewish figures in America of the 20th century. That's, I don't know who the other four are. He understands the ability to mobilize through agency, through organization. He understands the importance of brokering the deal. But one thing Japan's Jewish experts didn't know about Stephen Wise was that people were always approaching him with crazy plans to build a Jewish state. And unless that crazy plan was for the land of Israel, Stephen Wise always said no as loudly as possible. He'd already spoken out against a plan for a Jewish state in Uganda and another one in Suriname about the Jewish activist who'd been scouting land in Suriname. Rabbi Wise publicly announced, I personally believe that he needs to be lynched or hanged and quartered if that would make his demise more certain. In fact, the Manchurian plan wasn't even the only crazy plan for a Jewish state that came across Wise's desk that week. That same week, Roosevelt's Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes, proposed a plan to resettle German Jewish refugees in Alaska. Like Manchuria, Alaska was vast, frigid, remote, and underpopulated, a perfect dumping ground for Jews. Ickes floated this idea to Rabbi Wise who turned it down. As Wise put it, he did not want to, quote, leave a wrong and hurtful impression that Jews are taking over some part of the country. Of course, that was exactly the impression that Jews had left with Japan. Wise refused to meet with the Manchurian Jew Zikman. And Wise basically said, I'll have nothing to do with you nothing to do with this concept. I don't think the Americans were interested at all. Wise's only letter to Zickman said, 
I think it is wholly vicious for Jews to give support to Japan, as truly fascist a nation as Germany or Italy. This scared the daylights out of Zickman, who wrote back, begging, in the name of the 15,000 Jews of the Far East, I implore you to think of us, not to throw us on the waves of disaster and not take upon yourself the responsibility of any consequences. Wise didn't care about those consequences, but Zickman did. For years, the Japanese police in Harbin had partnered with local thugs to kidnap, torture, and murder Jews in order to extort their assets. Zickman was too terrified to show Wise's letter to his Japanese overlords, which meant they felt free to pressure Wise again. Soon they'd be ready to raise the bar to bring the Jewish-Japanese connection back to the level of the legendary dead Jew, Jacob Schiff. Meanwhile, things were going great for Japan. By 1938, after massacring hundreds of thousands of Chinese civilians in Nanjing, they had finally taken over Shanghai, a city where rich Jews already lived, including the fabulously wealthy Sephardi families of Kaduri and Sassoon. It was also filling up with German Jewish refugees. Captain Inazuka knew the moment had come. He told his superiors, now is the best chance for us to conduct a Jewish operation. So on December 6, 1938 in Tokyo, Japan's prime minister convened what became known as the Five Ministers' Conference, a top-secret meeting of the five most powerful men in Japan. And the decision at the highest level is a conference meeting. I uh, don't think it was chaired by the emperor, but it included the prime minister, the foreign minister, the finance minister, minister of the army and navy, top big five. The topic of this meeting was the most important subject on earth, the Jews. At the meeting, the five ministers were in a bind. They couldn't piss off their new best friends, the Nazis, especially since the Nazis were clearly right about the diabolical Jews. But wasn't it even more dangerous to piss off the diabolical Jews, especially the omnipotent American ones? There was also fear of Jews. Fear, for example, if we do something wrong, how will American Jews react? The meeting went on late into the night, with ministers examining the Jewish experts' extensive statistics on exactly how much of the American government, media, and banks were controlled by Jews. By the end, they decided that while they couldn't, quote, publicly embrace the Jews, they also couldn't reject them in light of our need for foreign capital and our desire not to alienate America. And they said, we will not treat the Jews in any other way than we treat other foreigners. But Jews have to be watched. The solution was to create a Manchurian Jewish state controlled by Japan and financed entirely by American Jews. Colonel Yasue and Captain Inazuka were thrilled. They started picking out spots in Manchuria to build new Jewish towns and calculating how much cash the American Jews would need to provide. By June 1939, they completed their 90-page detailed plan for their Jewish state, which Inuzuka hand-delivered to Tokyo. The report had a sexy title that would make Borat proud. 
concrete measures to be employed to turn friendly to Japan, the public opinion in Far East diplomacy policy closed circle of President of USA by manipulating influential Jews in China. Later, they shortened it to the study and analysis of introducing Jewish capital. Or in other words, how to get money from the Jews. The plan explained that 80% of American journalists were Jews, so it would be easy to sway public opinion and create what the authors called Israel in Asia, apparently unaware that Israel was in fact already in Asia. Getting 50,000 German Jews to move there would be a breeze. To make this dream come true, all they needed from American Jews was $100 million. Did that sound like a big ask? Well, it obviously wasn't, because it was half the amount of money that Jacob Schiff had once given to Japan. Schiff was long dead, but the living Jew, Rabbi Stephen Wise, would surely say yes. The experts prepared carefully. They handpicked Mitsuko Tamura, a Japanese businessman and MIT graduate with many Jewish business contacts, as their emissary to New York to meet the legendary living Jew. Tamura sat down in Rabbi Wise's office, armed with talking points. He carefully explained how much the Japanese admired the Jews, how much the Jews needed a Jewish state, and how much money Japan needed from American Jews to make that dream come true. If cash was too difficult, he politely noted, Japan would be happy to be paid in war materials instead. In that moment, Wise's political know-how trumped his charisma. He stood up at his desk and told this man to screw himself. Then he threw him out of his office. Back in Japan, the Jewish experts were stunned and confused. They asked themselves, why didn't it work? They did not ask themselves the more obvious question. Was it possible that their 20 years of diligent research had been based entirely on a lie? That question was impossible to ask because by the end of the year, Japan had fully signed on with the Nazis. And a year after that, Japan attacked the United States. The plan for a Jewish state in Manchuria was finally dead. Here's the weirdest thing, though. The Japanese never succeeded in their plan to create a Jewish state in Manchuria. But their bizarre idea did have one concrete result. Because they so badly wanted to lure in the diabolical Jews, they didn't close their borders to Jewish refugees until the end of 1940. Almost accidentally, this created a life-saving loophole that allowed thousands of desperate Jews from Europe to come to Japan and China. About 18,000 Jews managed to reach Shanghai. A Japanese consul in Lithuania, Chinue Sugihara, discovered this loophole and dove into it. He wrote transit visas for over 4,000 Jews to escape Lithuania, a group that included the entire faculty and student body of the famous Mir Yeshiva which survived the war intact in Shanghai. In hindsight, one could argue that Japan's crazy dead-end idea saved more Jews than Stephen Wise ever did. The Jews who made it to Manchuria and Shanghai didn't care much about the motives of these weird Japanese experts. 
they cared that their lives had been spared. In 1941, the Jews of Harbin entered Colonel Yasue's name into the Golden Book of the Jewish National Fund for his service to the Jewish people. Captain Inazuka was given a commemorative silver cigarette case inscribed with the words, in gratitude and appreciation for your service to the Jewish people from the Union of Orthodox Rabbis of the United States. When the War Crimes Tribunal came for him, he pulled out that cigarette case from the Grateful Jews and got his case dismissed. Later, in the hopes of being recognized for his righteousness toward the Jews, he even donated the cigarette case to Israel's Holocaust Museum at Yad Vashem. That approach is typical in post-war Japan, where there's been enormous interest in the Holocaust. There was once even a Japanese tampon brand named after Anne Frank. Seriously. Japanese museums and publications often call attention to the country's noble rescuers of the Jews. Apparently, everyone's heart was in the right place all along. Weirdly, the only person who saw through it was Colonel Yasue, the man who once went all the way to Palestine to learn about the Jewish threat. As it turned out, he was a samurai to the end. When the Russians conquered Manchuria in 1945, he could have returned home to Japan. Instead, he held a formal farewell ceremony with his family, where he told his children that his generation had been wrong about everything. Then he surrendered himself to the Soviets and died in a Siberian gulag. Sometimes I wonder what Yasue was thinking during his two long stints in Siberia. The first time when his Russian allies gave him that amazing book that changed his life. And then the second time, dying in a gulag after basing his entire career on a lie. How could someone so thoughtful and curious have been so entirely fooled? How could a whole empire have been so entirely fooled? How could so many people, for years upon years, have been so completely blind to reality? Was it all just because of that one dead Jew, Jacob Schiff? Jacob Schiff was a brilliant financier, but his goal wasn't world domination. It was generosity. His enormous philanthropic gifts helped build the American middle class. He also created many institutions that sustain American Jewish life today. He was a religious man, one who recited prayers every morning until the day he died. Schiff's favorite verse from the Torah, Numbers 11.29, is the exact opposite of what you'd expect from a powerful Jewish beggar trying to dominate the world. He loved to quote it frequently because, ostensibly, he knew that most people don't particularly have a great vision or plan for the future. And most people aren't all that wise. In that verse, the Torah says, if only all the Lord's people were prophets. If only the Japanese had been a little more skeptical.
Adventures with Dead Juice is brought to you by Tablet Studios and Soul Shop. It's created and written by me, Dara Horn, and produced and edited by Josh Cross and Robert Scaramuccia. The managing producer is Sarah Fredman-Ader, and the executive producers are Leah Leibovitz, Stephanie Butnick, Gabby Weinberg, and Dan Luxenberg. We hope you'll rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can join us on our adventures. My new book, People Love Dead Jews, is published by W.W. Norton and is available wherever books are sold. It's also available as an audiobook from Recorded Books. I hope you'll check it out. For this episode, special thanks to Zev Elef and Mayron Medzini. You can find more information on their work in the show notes, along with other sources to learn more about topics from today's show. Next week, we'll be revisiting the iconic Holocaust movie Schindler's List, along with the iconic dinosaur movie Jurassic Park. I'm Dara Horn, and I'll see you then for more Adventures with Dead Jews. Dead Jews.